Mondon reading group uh, picking up again in the new year. Um, we've been a little bit sporadic the last uh, month or so uh, with people, um, you know, having uh, holidays and uh, not being able to attend. Uh, but uh, we're going to try to get through the next uh, couple of sections and finish off uh, volume two of individuation. Uh, so we're picking up from page 656 of the PDF. Uh, continuing on analysis of the criteria of individuality. Um, and we're at the section heading principle of study concerning the individual. Um, so I think, um, let me just take a look at what we looked at last time. So we we saw, um, so this this text is uh, a little bit, little bit strange, I think. Um, it's kind of a dense text, but it's also, um, I guess, a little bit disjointed in the sense that each of these sections is, is a little bit um, not entirely independent of the others, of course, but um, it it doesn't have a, a sort of single line of argument that goes through the whole text. I don't think, um, but um, yeah. So he he introduces his um, his idea of um, taking this paradigm from the sciences, um, but he um, he takes it to be. Uh, he takes the development of science to be not uh, from sort of concrete realities and then abstracting from it and producing hypotheses uh, in abstraction from uh, from uh, observations. He instead takes it that the the progress of science or the development of sciences occurs through um, the progressive realization of hypotheses. So there's a, a hypothesis that is abstract at the outset. Um, so like the atomic hypothesis in ancient Greece uh, was essentially just an intellectual construction. Um, and then as science develops and uh, progresses, that hypothesis becomes more and more concrete and uh, actually realizes itself. So the development of science is not something like um, uh, uh, a sort of intellectual adequation. It's actually um, a realization it's a, a production of realities that um that uh corresponds to this hypothesis from the outset uh and so in the case of the atomistic hypothesis um in when when this hypothesis is sort of revived in the 19th century uh it's now um sort of uh, put into the statistical form so you can for example deduce the properties of gases based on uh, statistical distributions of molecules, uh, and then over the course of the 20th century, it becomes even more concrete in the sense that uh, now scientists and uh, engineers are able to um, physically manipulate individual molecules and atoms. Uh, so I mentioned um, a famous demonstration that uh, some IBM researchers did in the 90s, where they actually um, used individual atoms to um, draw the IBM logo, um, you know, sort of, I think it was like 20 atoms or something like that to um, to draw the IBM logo um, that you could see with an electron microscope. So, um, uh, and then there was a, a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago now, um, uh, a publication of some researchers who were able to um, set up a, an apparatus that could um, rotate individual molecules clockwise or counterclockwise on command. Um, so the capacity to manipulate individual atoms or individual molecules 
uh, is a kind of concretization of the atomistic hypothesis. Uh, it, it's taking this, what was an abstract intellectual hypothesis and actually producing realities that, um, that correspond to it. Uh, and so this, he sees this concretization process as being the, the general sort of form of scientific development as opposed to, um, you know, coming to more and more abstract laws, which is maybe a more traditional picture of scientific development. And uh, in the case of philosophy, what this means is that we, um, we have to consider uh, even sort of abstract metaphysical or epistemological theses uh, we have to consider them in terms of the um, axiological consequences that that we can draw from them. So it has to do with uh, taking these abstract theses and having them bring about some sort of transformation of reality through human action. Uh, so um, there's a kind of um, self-justifying nature to these uh, abstract metaphysical and epistemological theses. So they, they sort of realize themselves in reality as opposed to um, having a nature, having a, a kind of um, correspondence to something that exists outside of our thought. Uh, so it's not, the, it's not the case that we come up with a metaphysical thesis uh, and then sort of compare it with reality and see does it match or not. What instead happens in philosophical thinking is that we um, come up with a metaphysical thesis, and then we actually transform reality in such a way as to make it um, align with that metaphysical thesis through human action. Uh, so that's that's this sort of self-justifying uh, character of uh, philosophical thought. Yes, and I should maybe explain that axiology um, it would be a philosophy of value. So um, uh, any uh, and and we talked about this a little bit in volume when we read volume one. Um, so any sort of action that you take, including uh, an omission of action or a refusal of action, um, is uh, is a sort of implicit um, selection of values or um, implicitly a relation with a value. So if you choose to um, go to university instead of joining the army or vice versa, you're implicitly saying that going to university is better, is, is a, you know, of higher value than joining the army or, or vice versa. Um, and uh, whichever sort of course of action you uh, select is one that you are, um, you're sort of implicitly um, acting in accordance with a, a valuation of those courses of action. Uh, and so, uh, of course, you know, uh, most of our daily actions are of relatively um, limited value, uh, valuation sort of, um, uh, I guess, potential. Um, so if you, you know, choose to have X for lunch instead of Y, it's not um, a particularly important um, decision in terms of, you know, valuing one food over the other. Um, but, uh, you know, when we think about big life decisions about whether to join the army or not, or, or whatever other sort of, um, you know, whether to get married or divorced, um, these types of decisions involve some sort of um, hierarchization of values where you say this action um, has a higher value or is aligned with a, a higher value than the other course of action. Um, and, you know, ultimately we can understand this um, hierarchization of values uh, in connection with um, metaphysical and epistemological theses in the sense that um, by 
by selecting one action over another, um, you are um, uh, so yeah. By by that selection, you are um, saying that one of those courses of action has a higher value than the other. Um, but this is sort of uh, a consequence of um, what kind of metaphysical um, bearing uh, each of these courses of action has on uh, the nature of human existence, for example. So if you uh, if you think that human existence, um, uh, sort of the the fundamental characteristic of human existence is a search for knowledge, then you might um, select the course of action of going to university um, uh, and you know studying philosophy or or physics or whatever. Um, but if you think that the uh, fundamental determination of uh, human nature is something different than the search for knowledge, then maybe you don't go to university. And so each of those decisions sort of corresponds to an understanding of what human existence consists in. Um, and, and so in, in that sense, um, each of these valuations uh, sort of uh, implicitly has a metaphysical component to it as well. Okay, so let's um, start on the text. Uh, let me read the next uh, page or so because we have yeah we have a short section and then a longer section so I'll read about a page okay principle of study concerning the individual on which level it may be apprehended the reality on whichever level it may be apprehended the reality of the individual is from the start governed by an external and negative principle that can be called the principle of energetic determinism or rather the principle of energetic conservation if we consider a physical system from a macroscopic point of view the principle of the conservation of energy which, if we want to be absolutely rigorous, is generalized by the introduction of a parameter that expresses in units of energy the variations of mass that the system could undergo during energetic transformations is absolutely valid, i.e. without considering the becoming internal to the system according to which individuals appear or disappear during the course of various successive transformations. It would no doubt be illusory to research the profound essence of the individual in an exception to the principle of energetic determinism, even by affirming that this exception is extraordinarily slight, as Bergson wants to do, in order to safeguard the notion of psychical freedom. At a time when the notion of kinetic energy wasn't clearly defined or precisely measured and was confused with quantity of movement, Descartes held, held strong in the belief of creating the possibility of an absolute initiative of the race cogitants that was dependent on the capacity of imposing a variation of direction with an increase or decrease of labor in the least dense parts of the body i.e. in the animal spirits, which are rigorously those of race extensa and do not in any way participate in the race cogitants. Undoubtedly, the principle of inertia does not allow us to follow Descartes in this theory of the relation between two substances, but the examples of Cartesian thought, uh, sorry, the example of Cartesian thought with all the efforts meant to resolve the difficulties of bisubstantialism is an exemplary illustration of a labor intended to found a theory of the distinction and relations between the essential interiority of an indivisible being and the rest of the entire world. We should particularly note that Descartes does not seek to found the distinction on the one hand and the relation on the other hand upon two different principles, which would amount to introducing a facility. Descartes struggles against such a facility when he refuses to resort to impressed species, which would have easily offered him a reference to scholastic doctrines. Since he refused the apparent simplification that would have been a recourse to the mixture as immediate term of the relation between the substances of thought and extension, Descartes had to follow, had to allow a flaw to remain in his system. But at the cost of this imperfection, 
a unity of method infinitely rich in signification and fruitful in developments is kept intact. The principle of conservation is guaranteed for the substance, thought, as well as the substance extension. Descartes particularly developed the consequences of the principle of conservation in the domain of physical quantities that measure the modifications of race extensa, theory of simple machines, whereas Malebranche applied the same principle of conservation to the modifications of the race, race cogitants, particularly in the study of attention. In Descartes, since there is no conservation of what we today call work, the displacement of the point of application of a force whose direction is parallel to this displacement is inversely proportionate to the intensity of the force. Similarly, in Malebranche, the extension of the known object and the intelligible clarity of the thought that knows it varies in inverse proportion, just as the intensity of illumination produced by a bundle of light varies in inverse proportion to the area it illuminates. Thought is conserved, but it can become concentrated through focalization or spread out through diffusion. Yeah, let's stop here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is a sort of long paragraph as we so often come across in uh, Simon Dong. Um, but yeah, so here we have, um, um, so first there's a, a criticism of Bergson or any sort of attempt to um, understand the freedom of the individual or the um, autonomy of an individual, whether, so in, in Bergson, it's a human individual as a free being, um, but any sort of attempt to grasp the autonomy of an individual, whether human or otherwise, as something like a, a deviation from determinism. Um, so for Simon Don, this is sort of a, a, a dead end, uh, not really a, a productive way of understanding the autonomous reality of an individual. Um, and he so he illustrates this by looking at Descartes' attempt to explain the, the action of the human will uh, in relation to the uh, operation of the uh, human body. Uh, and so for Descartes, he gives this um, explanation in terms of which the quantity of movement is constant. Um, so the human will can't actually change the, the quantity of movement in the universe. Um, uh, it's not the case that the human will sort of brings about uh, an addition to the quantity of movement or a subtraction from the quantity of movement in the universe. But what the human will can do is to change the direction of movement um, of the animal spirits in the nervous system. So the, the actual total quantity stays the same, but the direction of the movement of those animal spirits can be deviated by the action of the human will. Um, and, and so because in Descartes' system, it's only the quantity of movement that's conserved, the actual direction of that movement can be changed without any uh, loss or any uh, sort of physical work being required. Um, but what Simon Do points out here is that um, the uh, animal spirits in our nervous system are fundamentally um, portions of race extensa uh, in Descartes' system, and so ultimately, there's no there's no reason why uh, the human will should be able to act on the animal spirits any more than it can act on the muscles or the bones or any other part of the human body. Um, there's no even uh, it, it's a sort of illusory um, um, intermediation. Uh, so we think of these animal spirits as very um, very fine. Uh, or very subtle matter, as as Descartes calls them, um, 
but that doesn't make them in reality any closer to um, the human will or the race cogitants. Um, they're just as diverse or, or disparate from the race cogitants as any other portion of uh, race extensa. So um, um, Descartes' solution is ultimately not a real solution. He just says that um, you know we, we, the human will does have this capacity to change the direction of uh, of the animal spirits in the nerves, but um, this is sort of a bare assertion, there's, and there's no reason why um, this connection should apply to the animal spirits as opposed to any other portion of, of race extensa. Uh, and so, um, but Simondon recognizes that this uh, sort of obscurity of um, the connection between race cogitans and race extensa in Descartes' system is kind of compensated by the fact that each side uh, in, within race cogitans and race extensa, uh, each treated independently, there's this uh, principle of conservation. So in the, in the case of race extensa, it's the conservation of the quantity of movement. Um, and this is the one that Descartes focuses on. Uh, but then in the uh, race cogitans, we would have a, a sort of equivalent um, conservation of attention, and this is what Malbranche develops more than, than Descartes does. Uh, so there would be, for example, um, attention would be something that can be um, spread out over uh, a wide domain. Uh, so you can sort of pay attention to many different things or, or a large um, uh, sort of subdomain of reality. Um, but then each portion of that uh, subdomain would have uh, a lesser degree of uh, attention devoted to it. Or alternatively, you can pay attention to one particular thing or, or one small portion of reality, and then you would have a, a larger degree of attention devoted to that portion of reality. So there's a, a sort of inverse um, relationship between the uh, amount uh, or the the portion of reality that you are paying attention to and the intensity of that intention applied to that portion of reality. Okay, uh, so let's continue um, from there. Uh, so if someone else could pick up from furthermore Descartes. Uh, yeah, I can read. Furthermore, Descartes had already employed this principle of the conservation of the same quantity of thought by establishing the rules of reasoning. Straightforward and constructive reasoning draws its fruitfulness from the fact that it is not tautology. But precisely due to this, it cannot control its validity by means of the principle of identity. In fact, Descartes resorts to a principle that is analogous to the principle of conservation in simple machines. In the same way that the Cartesian machine is one that operates a transformation through which work is conserved because the machine is in a state of continuous equilibrium throughout the transformation. Reasoning is rigorous when it operates a quote-unquote transfer of evidence from one proposition to the next. <clears throat> Cartesian reasoning does not depend on identity but on equivalence. It operates a lossless transfer of sense from one proposition to the sense of the following proposition. This is why a doctrine like that of animals-machines animals seemed natural to Descartes. A mechanistic representation of vital operations to him was not able to seem like a reduction to an inferior level of reality, since thought itself unfolds in its most authentic operations according to a principle of conservation analogous to what is at work in machines, which are simple and consequently perfect. 
Nevertheless, Cartesian thought seems to have been unable to push the principle of conservation to its ultimate consequences. It announced two particular principles of conservation, one for res extensa, the other for res cogitans. And it only attempted a generalization of the principle of conservation in the cases of exchanges between the two substances. Prominent in Descartes toward the end of his life, this is the meaning of the tendency to admit the existence of an idea of the union of the soul and the body. But this doctrine was not fully explained, and it is instead in Spinoza's doctrines of psychophysiological parallelism or Leibniz's concrete individual notion that the extension of this line of research could be followed. Only Descartes' ethics could shed light on this subject, specifically the one that emerges from the passions of the soul or from his correspondence with Princess Elizabeth. The very fact that Descartes does not wish to absolutely distinguish the foundation of the judgment of perfection from that of judgment of reality, of the judgment of reality, reveals the possibility of a transfer that legitim legitimizes an extension of the principle of conservation. Furthermore, the two, the two demonstrations of the existence of God depend on such a principle. Uh, for the demonstration of the fifth meditation would fall under Kant's assault if it did not depend on that of the third meditation. The ontological transfer is valid because a first transfer has been defined and carried out. That which leads from infinity and from perfection, grasped not as concepts separate from their object but as veritable realities, the whole of divinity, of which they are already integrating parts. Transfer is possible because there is a passage not from the concept to the thing, but from a partial reality to a total reality. Judgment does not change any modality, does not change modality at any moment. The approach begins and ends in epistemological realism, insofar as this approach is not a deduction but a transfer. The ontological argument is only valid to the extent that it utilizes the reversibility of an already accomplished transfer, just as in a simple machine, motor work can be converted into resistant work through a slight change in the direction of displacement, which is the description of the very condition of reversibility. Thus, in Cartesianism, we have the example of a thought that utilized a principle of conservation due to which relations other than identity or alterity, i.e. the equivalence or transfer of properties from part to whole, can be thought logically. Descartes went as far as contemplating the rapport between an operation and a structure, which was taken up by Spinoza in his theory of path-breaking, intended to explain habits and corporeal memory with this ever-present preoccupation with reversibility, due to which an act gives rise to the determination of a trace, and the trace gives rise to the further determination of an act. Um, yeah, this the idea of thought working by lossless transfer and deduction is also something that he talked about in History of the Notion of the Individual in the Descartes section. It's interesting to me that this seems to be what guarantees the validity of synthetic propositions. Um, and I don't totally understand how it's supposed to ground the ontological argument uh, in if I remember correctly, Kant's objection to this is that you can't, you, that being is not a predicate, being is a, is a kind of postulation. Um, and so you can't go from the idea of the, the idea of a, a being that has every predicate to the necessity of that being's existence. Yeah. Um, so there's a few, 
um, kind of difficult abstract uh, concepts at work in this section that maybe we can go over. Um, so yeah, uh, Kant's criticism of, um, actually maybe I should start with, with Descartes' two arguments for the existence of God. I meant to um, look these up, but I didn't uh, go through them. So I'm just doing this from memory. But if I remember correctly, the, um, the, the argument in the third meditation has to do with the um, uh, existence within us or within myself as the thinking subject. Uh, so this is after I've um, performed the cogito. So I, I know that I exist at least. Uh, that's one thing that I can know for sure. Um, and then I find within myself the idea of a perfect being, uh, of, of an infinite being, uh, I should say. Um, and uh, given that I myself am finite, um, this idea of an infinite being has to come from without, from outside of me. Uh, and so he he argues that, um, you know, ultimately um, this, this idea of an infinite being has to come from the infinite being itself. It, it has to come from uh, a being that does have infinite reality. Uh, and so here we have uh, a sort of... Um, principle of convertibility, um, which Descartes doesn't explicitly state, but it's the idea that um, um, the content of an idea, um, uh, an idea that has the infinite as its content, uh, itself has uh, infinite reality. Um, so if I, if I have a, an idea of the infinite, of an infinite being, uh, then the reality of that idea itself, so the the idea as a, as a component of my mental existence or something along those lines, that idea itself has infinite reality. Um, and since I'm a finite being, um, uh, I can't um, my my finite existence can't be the the cause of this infinite idea, this idea with infinite reality. Um, and so it's only uh, an infinite being that can be the cause of uh, an idea that has infinite reality, um, such as the idea of an infinite being. Um, so that's the argument in the third meditation. And then the argument of the fifth meditation is the, the more traditional ontological argument, um, which is that um, God as a being, uh, so if we define God or if we understand God as the being, that contains uh, all perfections or all realities. Um, uh, since existence is a perfection, um, then that being must exist. Or to put it alternately, if we conceive of a, a being that is supposed to be perfect, but that does not exist, then it would be possible to think of uh, a more perfect being, which would be one that has all those same perfections, but does exist. Um, so the, the, the concept of a most perfect being that does not exist is, uh, is a contradiction in terms uh, because we can always conceive of a more perfect being uh, as one that does exist. Um, and that's, that's the uh, sort of classic ontological argument that Descartes takes on. Uh, and then Kant criticizes the, that argument, that ontological argument, um, in, uh, along the lines that you suggested, Angus. Um, so... He argues that being is not um, is not a predicate, so you can't take a, a subject like God or you know a, an entity like God and then say that being is a predicate that uh, that we um, attribute to that subject. Um, instead, uh, he wants to think of uh, so his his sort of example for 
uh, or his um, analogy that he wants us to draw is if you take the concept of a hundred dollars um, or tellers uh, in his uh, usage in in German, um, uh, the concept of a hundred dollars um, doesn't differ in any way from uh, the actuality of a hundred dollars or a hundred possible dollars and a hundred actual dollars don't differ in any conceptual terms. Otherwise, if there were a difference in concept, then the hundred actual dollars would not be would not correspond to the hundred possible dollars. Um, so you have to you have to take it that the uh, conceptual determination of a hundred possible dollars is identical to the conceptual determination of a hundred actual dollars. Um, but of course, when we are dealing with uh, you know actual uh, debts and payments and so on. Um, there's all the difference in the world between 100 possible dollars or 100 dollars that I conceive of and 100 actual dollars that I can use to make a payment. Um, so Kant takes this to, to be a, a sort of um, illustration of the fact that the um, reality of those or actuality of those 100 dollars is not something conceptual. Um, it's something it, it has to do with existence outside the concept. Um, and how exactly we're meant to grasp this existence outside the concept is something that Kant leaves somewhat obscure, but he he takes it that um, um, sensibility is uh, essential to grasping the existence of something outside the concept. Um, so it's only insofar as we can uh, connect our conceptual determination with some sort of sensible affection of ourselves um, that we can attribute to it uh, existence outside the concept. Uh, and because the ontological argument is meant to be purely a priori, so it's, it's, it's something that works at the level of the concept only, um, it's, uh, it doesn't allow us to, uh, to attribute existence outside the concept to God. Uh, and so Kant takes this argument to be invalid for that reason. Um, and there is a whole sort of logical tradition of um, uh, in 19th century, especially German uh, logical writers of examining the the uh, the form of the existential proposition. So to say that uh, a proposition like God exists or a hundred dollars exist or whatever, um, you know, what exactly are you asserting in making that kind of uh, when you say something uh, of that form? Uh, and so, for example, Frege will argue that um, uh, existential judgments are actually second order judgments about concepts. So when you say that, um, you know, uh, there is a unicorn, for example, or unicorns exist or something along those lines, what you're saying is that the concept unicorn is instantiated or there is at least one entity such that the concept unicorn applies to that entity. Um, and uh, and so likewise, in the ontological arguments, if you say God exists, you're saying that there is at least one entity such that the concept God applies to that entity. Um, and if we if we take it that existential judgments have this kind of form, then uh, uh, we can see why um, the uh, why existence is not a predicate uh, or being is not a predicate. So. Um, when when we say God exists, it has the sort of surface form of being uh, uh, a predication of some property to the entity God. Um, and then you can sort of develop the whole argument from there. But uh, if you analyze the the more sort of uh, 
underlying grammar or underlying logical structure of the proposition. What instead you're saying is there is an entity uh, such that the the uh, the concept God applies to that entity, and then so you're already in in that uh, in asserting that sentence, you're already asserting that the entity exists. So you can't um, you can't use that. Uh, um, uh, you can't use that as a premise to show that the entity exists because you're already asserting it in the premise. Uh, so that's sort of the Frigian development of that Kantian um, argument against the ontological argument. Um, uh, but what Simondo argues here is that the um, argument in the third meditation, Descartes' argument in the third meditation serves as sort of the, the basis for the ontological argument in the fifth meditation. So what he's saying, uh, as far as I understand, is that what Descartes is doing is not the move that Kant takes him to be doing um, from the realm of the concept to the realm of actual existence. Uh, there's no passage from one realm to another or one sort of logical domain to the other in Descartes. Uh, instead, um, what he's doing is always operating at the level of... Um, uh, he's always staying within the realm of uh, the the substance thought. Uh, so he's looking at the the um, the quantity of reality contained in an idea. Um, and so in the third meditation, he argues that the quantity of reality contained in the idea of a infinite being is something that it surpasses my capacity as a finite being to to produce or to bring about. Um, and then in the fifth meditation, he's still um, operating with the um, the concept, uh, or he's still operating in the domain of thought, and he's saying that um, the uh, quantity of reality contained in the idea of a most perfect being that does exist is greater than the quantity of reality contained in the concept of a perfect being that does not exist. Um, and so ultimately, we have to take the uh, perfect being that does exist as being the uh, fundamental reality from which our concept of the perfect being derives. Uh, and so it's this um, this sort of transfer of validity uh, of uh, this transfer of the quantity of reality contained in an idea that Simondon takes to be uh, sort of the general schema of Cartesian deduction, um, as opposed to a sort of uh, ontological passage from the domain of the concept or the realm of thought uh, to existence outside the concept, which is what Kant takes Descartes to be doing. Um, so that's, I think, sort of the picture of what Simondon's argument is here. But he, yeah, so it's quite compressed, but that's um, sort of the background that, uh, that Simondon is working with. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next... Uh, I think yeah, the, we can read the rest of this text up to the end of the the text. So, um, Ali, if you would like to read from "Such as the Path." Okay, uh, "Such as the Path," open the for the most part by Descartes, that you will attempt to follow by engaging a theory of the individual. But the principle of a conservation cannot suffice alone to found this research, since it is essentially negative. It prohibits supposing intervention of a foreign term in the relation of the individual to the milieu, in the relation of the individual to itself, or in the relation of the individual to another individual. 
but it does not allow for the description of what the individual is considered in its structure and its operations. This path makes it possible with great difficulty to rigorously constitute a hierarchy of different levels of individuality and act more like an epistemological precaution than a constitutive principle. This is why the second principle, which is essentially positive, will not be able to be discovered in the simple formal inspection of the conditions of, the, of knowledge of the ind- individual, but will have to be sought in the direct analysis of the simplest forms of the individuality grasped by way of the, condition, the conditions of their genesis. In this sense, it will attempt to establish that there is on the very level of a physical individuality a certain bundle of conditions that cannot be conflated with the essence of the individual, but are more than a simple occasion of the individual's production, since they extend their existence after the appearance of the individual as individual's inherent characteristics. The individual incorporates and concretizes conditions under which it has been born, such that we can contemplate the genesis of the individual, an individual as a sort of as a sort of transfer of reality. Another distribution of matter and energy with the relative reversibility of conditions to conditions and the conditioned. In this sense, the genesis of the individual cannot be identified with an empirical and exterior description of, of conditions. The genesis of the individual must be envisioned as a change of state in which the initial state is not the cause of the final state, but rather its interior equivalent. If this point of view is acceptable, it leads not just to the consideration of every individual as a con- complementary of a milieu, but also allows us to compare the asymmetrical ensemble formed by the individual and its complementary milieu with another ensemble, uh, i.e. the initial e- system on the basis of which is constituted the passage to the second state of the system in which the individual is distinct from the from its milieu. We'll, we will therefore treat the genesis of the individual by way of the a theory of equivalence in exchanges involving the transformation of a system. Since the theory can be called allegomatics. 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 Right. Um, yeah, so this last bit is um, quite dense as well and a little bit obscure, I think. Um, so he, Simondon here is um, introducing some, I think, familiar themes from volume one that we looked at, uh, you know, this notion of the individual um, as a result of, uh, uh, sorry, the individual and the milieu as the complementary pair that result from the um process of genesis out of something pre-individual, uh, a pre-individual reality. Um, and um, so this is a familiar idea from volume one, uh, but he's here connecting it in a not entirely clear way, or at least not clear to me, um, with the Cartesian concept that he developed earlier about this transfer of reality. But I, I think maybe the idea is that the total quantity of reality that is contained in the pre-individual reality is conserved in the um, the complementary pair of the individual and milieu that um, arises out of that genesis uh, from the the pre-individual reality. So when we when we look at the individual, 
um, we we have to understand that individual in relation or in connection with its uh, surrounding milieu uh, and uh, the total quantity of reality contained in the individual and the milieu and not just look at the individual in isolation. Uh, and it's only when we um, grasp the, the individual and the milieu together that we can uh, affect this sort of transfer of, of reality from the pre-individual reality through this process of genesis into the individual and the milieu. I think that may be something like um, the the kind of connection that Simondon is trying to draw here with the Cartesian method, um, you know, between his method and the Cartesian method, but I'm not 100% confident about that uh, interpretation. Well, what I'm what I'm thinking about this part is that uh, my question is that um, whether Simudo is trying to uh, define define um, how do I say like the world or the world is a, a variety of individuals. So as a patchwork, as a patchwork. So it's kind of like uh, focused on the variety and then the, it's a value of a variety of individuals. Or another idea is that thinking about the individuality or individual. If you uh, think of one individual, uh, an individual, then other than the individual, other parts, the except for that individual, other parts can be regarded as uh, the milieu. Then at the end of the day, um, the world is just a milieu. Like environment means like, unless we focus on particular individual, how can we distinguish? I mean, distinguish like uh, individual versus milieu. So what I want to say here is that, except for a particular individual, other than that, all the parts should be or can be defined as a milieu. And in that case, milieu is like the all the all the uh, combination, all the uh, the composition of individuals, or other than the individuals, there could be other other aspects or other elements or compo- uh, components. So it's kind of suddenly like kind of confusing, like how what I understood about Simongdong is he tried to emphasize this the uh, something new from the existing by by emphasizing the uh, genesis. I mean the ontogenesis, emphasizing ontogenesis. But at the same time, by reading this part, suddenly like I am kind of confused how we distinguish like the milieu and the individual. And then how, what, what part, what kind of individual should be focused on? And all, every individual is uh, important, such and such. Yeah, um, there's a, a few important questions in, in your, uh, your comments there that I think are, are worth um, going into. So maybe, um, maybe the first one we can look at is um, the distinction between milieu and individual. Um, so I think you're right to say that in some since this distinction is relative to an individual. So it's only if you first isolate um, um, an individual reality, so a human individual or a crystal or an organism or whatever sort of domain of of reality you're looking at. So you first have to isolate, here's the individual that I'm interested in. And then um, uh, in relation to that individual, um, you can define what the milieu is. So if you're talking about a crystal as a physical individual, then the milieu would be the um, the solution out of which the crystal is formed. Uh, if you're talking about um, 
uh, a living being, uh, a vital individual, then the milieu is, um, you know, the environment in the sort of normal sense of the word, the, you know, the set of um, uh, uh, resources that surround that individual, whether it's other organisms, uh, sunlight, uh, nutrients in the soil, etc. Um, so the the milieu is always defined in connection with the the individual. Um, uh, and then, so that raises the question, which I think you were sort of pointing towards, of um, if that milieu is always defined relative to the individual in question, then um, does that mean that this distinction between individual and milieu is itself uh, something relative um, that, or, or maybe to put the question in other terms, is there some sort of um, absolute reality of the distinction between the individual and the milieu? And I think the way Simon Do would understand this is that um, the, the individual milieu pair is what has absolute reality. Um, so um, it's only at the level of the, so yeah, each, each particular um, pairing of individual and milieu um, has to do with uh, a way of sort of cutting up reality. Uh, so, you know, we, we look at a particular um, pair of individual and milieu as being a physical individual or a vital individual or whatever. Um, but that uh, the pair of individual and milieu has absolute reality in the sense that it's not just a question of uh, perspective of the observer that determines that reality. So it's not, um, so we, we can, there is a fact of the matter um, about whether a particular individual milieu pair is a physical individual or a vital individual, for example. Um, um, so if if I you know point to a particular portion of, of reality and I say this is a vital individual um, with its surrounding milieu, then I can be wrong about that. I, I can make a mistake. It, it could be the case that in fact, the, this portion of reality is not a vital individual. Um, and it's this capacity for um, um, you know correctness and error. I think about which portions of reality um, are at which level of individuation. I think is what sort of um, constitutes the absolute value of this um, uh, sort of level of individuation uh, concept for Simondo. Um, and then I think another sort of aspect of what you bring up has to do with, um, I guess, the question. So if if there is this sort of relativity of um, uh, the degree of individuation or the if the milieu is always relative to an individual, um, can we conceive of the whole of reality as one big milieu or as one big individual? And I think Simon Don would say that neither of those options is um, is valid, um, precisely because the uh, the notion of an individual and the, and the notion of an of a milieu, um, each of them presupposes the other. Uh, so you you can only ever have um, uh, an individual in relation to a milieu, and likewise you can only ever have a milieu in relation to an individual. So you can't conceive of reality as a whole as being one big individual, which is what he takes uh, Spinoza to be doing. Um, uh, and you can also can't take reality as a whole to be one big milieu, um, which would be a sort of, um, I don't know, 
opposite of Spinoza, I guess. Um, but uh, either way, you are sort of only grasping one aspect of reality uh, without the complementary aspect. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think that idea of, um, you know, everything would just be uh, milieu, there would be no individual. I think that's sort of um, uh, how Simondo would answer that question. Uh, so, uh yeah, your explanation gives like a so much clearer idea on this. Uh, that I think that's the part that's the distinctive points, uh, uh, which is different from Spinozian Spinozian idea about the world. So, uh, firstly, like I think uh, Simundong is trying to uh, say, kind of how to zoom in, zoom in, like uh, the world. Then you can see like uh, um, the world uh, like uh, or or, I mean, different different individuals like a different uh, process of genesis. And the secondly, uh, as you said, uh, that that's neither milieu nor uh, an individual. Uh, instead, of what Smongdong tried to emphasize is, is that it's not the uh, set in advance by, by by God as a one kind of the world. It's not just a stable or <clears throat> uh, defined or decided world. Instead, uh, it keeps changing because, like, um, that that's the it's very interesting. That's the the uh, meaning of ontogenesis. So, so by uh, continuing like interaction like, between each each every uh, in the every and each individual and the, uh, their milieu, uh, continuously we can see like a uh, unexpected, uh, un- something something new, something unexpected, and then it overlaps and overlaps and something like that, and then it makes something new again and again. So. The process of the ontogenesis, uh, like uh, the process of ge- uh, uh, generating a world, is is continuously changing. I think I think that's the uh, probably like uh, the Simongdong is trying to emphasize it through his theory. Yeah, this notion of ontogenesis—that's the other bit that I didn't um, sort of talk about in, in my response to your earlier comment. Um, yeah, so ontogenesis um, means that there there's a new um, a production of something new, uh, a new individual um, with its associated milieu out of something that was not previously an individual. Um, and um, we we have to, I think, um, understand this as a historically or, um, yeah, I guess historically determined concept in the sense that, um, you know, there was a time in the history of the universe in which there were no vital individuals um, it's only after a particular um, moment in time that we find vital individuals in existence. Uh, so the the vital level of individuation is something that only appears at a, at a given moment in the history of the universe. Um, and likewise with psychical individuation and so on. Um, so we can um, we can understand each of these levels of individuation as uh, an introduction of novelty into the universe. So there's a, a kind of existence that wasn't present before that now is present um, after this, you know, first uh, arising of this level of individuation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in that sense, ontogenesis is a, a kind of novelty uh, or a kind of um, production of novelty. Uh, but then once there is such a thing as vital individuation, so once the first living beings arise in the universe, 
then the process of ontogenesis of living beings can um, can be extended or or repeated, and you can have more living beings, um, uh, you know, continue to arise in uh, in the history of living beings and the history of uh, the individual. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Uh, okay. So. Um, yeah, that's the end of that text, Analysis of the Criteria of Individuality. Um, I think we can probably start on the next text, which is a, a good sort of um, segue from the, the Analysis of the Criteria of Individuality, because he sort of introduces right at the end this notion of allegmatics. And um, then the next text is all about allegmatics. So we'll sort of learn a little bit about what this weird term actually means. Um, so if someone would like to read the first uh, page or so of Allegmatics, um, we can continue from there. Uh, I can read Allegmatics. And there's a note from, I don't know if this is in the French or from the translator. This is notes on Allegmatics that have been preserved from Chabert-Simondon's preparatory manuscripts. Allegmatics is the theory of operations. <clears throat> in the order of the sciences, it is symmetrical with the theory of structures and is constituted by a systematized set of particular knowledges, astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology. Uh, each branch of allegmatics cannot be designated by an objective domain, like the study of matter or the study of life. On the other hand, an initial but useful way to distinguish its specifications consists in using the already constituted sciences to denominate various intervals. Indeed, an interval signifies the possibility of a rapport, and a rapport implies an operation. In this way, we will obtain physico-chemical allegmatics, psychophysiological allegmatics, mechanical thermodynamic allegmatics. But the drawback to this concrete nomenclature is that we may neglect certain operations that could be theorized if another principle of classification were to make their discovery possible. Perhaps it would be more appropriate to define the broad categories of operations and the different type of transformative dynamisms that objective study reveals, and then to try to classify these dynamisms according to their intrinsic characteristics. And perhaps the theoretical goal would be reached if a single fundamental type of operation could be defined that would include all particular operations as simpler cases. These degrees of simplicity would then define a hierarchy that would be a rigorous principle of classification. Um, should I read this next kind of long paragraph? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, let's read that one. Okay. It is just as difficult to define an operation as it is to define a structure other than by example. However, since a structure is given as the result of a construction, it can be said that the operation is what makes a structure appear or what modifies a structure. The operation, sorry, the operation is the ontological complement of the structure, and the structure is the ontological complement of the operation. The act contains the operation and the structure at the same time. Furthermore, depending on the side of the act we focus on, the act retains the operation element or the structure element by leaving its complement aside. Thus, while the geometer traces a line that is parallel to a straight line through a point taken outside the ladder, the geometer uh, focuses in the totality of his act on the structural element alone that interests the geometrical thought, i.e. the fact that a straight line is being traced in a certain relation with another straight line. Hence, the structure of the act is the parallelism of a straight line with respect to another straight line. But the geometer could also focus on the operation 
aspect of his act, i.e. the activity by which he traces, without being preoccupied with what he traces. This activity of tracing possesses its own schematism. The system to which it belongs is an operative system, not a structural system. Indeed, this activity proceeds from a volition that is itself a certain mental activity. It supposes the availability of a certain energy that is free and controlled by mental activity throughout all the links of a chain of complex conditional causalities. The execution of this activity involves an internal and external regulation of movement in an operative schema of finality. Thus, geometry and allegmatics take divergent paths from the very beginning of their activity. This idea of the geometrical structure, especially the straight line, being thought in terms of its uh, being drawn um, reminds me of you know, the idea of the schematism in the first critique. And well, I can't remember if that's in the schematism or not, but for Kant, whenever we think of a straight line, we have to draw the straight line, which I guess is kind of the point of the schematism, which is just that any concept has to be applied to the intuition in time. Yeah, he, uh, there's an interesting bit. Um, actually, it comes up, I think, a couple of times um, in the first critique, um, but his, his theory of mathematical knowledge um, uh, so for Kant, we have mathematical knowledge, not just through um, concepts, but through um, the form of intuition, which is a sort of mysterious bit, or um, there's the, the sort of one of the footnotes where he talks about the form of intuition and um, formal intuition. Um, 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 so we, we have geometrical knowledge, for example, because we um, know that our intuition has the, the external form, has the form of space. Um, and so we, we acquire geometrical knowledge, not just by analyzing, say, the concept of a triangle. Um, so he says, if you, if you just take the, the concept of a triangle and sort of analyze that concept, you can never extract any real knowledge out of it. Um, but if you actually draw a triangle and then you draw the auxiliary lines as um, in any Euclidean demonstration, uh, then you can, um, uh, you know, deduce properties such that um, uh, the interior angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles. Um, so you can you can actually just see that relationship after you draw the lines. Um, and um, so, of course, if you look at a, a physical drawing, you would, um, you know, this would be an empirical property. Uh, you would, you know, trace certain lines on paper or on a chalkboard or whatever and then you know take a protractor and measure the angles and you know given that if this is a physical drawing and not a, a sort of ideal um geometrical figure you would find that the angles are maybe not exactly equal to uh two right angles or um the lines are not perfectly straight or whatever um uh but what kant has in mind is a kind of ideal drawing so it's it's a we can in our um in our use of uh, our knowledge of the form of intuition or our, our um, so this is where the, the sort of difficult bit about the formal intuition comes in, is that we have to be able to sort of intuit the relations that, ha that constitute the form of intuition. So we, it's not just, um, it's not just a, that intuitions have the form of uh, external sense, uh, namely space, but we also have to be able to intuit those relations themselves. 
uh, in our uh, our sort of construction of geometrical figures. Um, so we can form a, a kind of ideal triangle and then intuit what um, what the relations of these uh, uh, angles in the triangle are. Um, and uh, so Kant, um, yeah, so he, he gives these examples of um, drawing a line as uh, being sort of the simplest uh, instance of a, an act of synthesis. So um, to, to grasp um, the unity through time of the subject, so the fact that um, I... Uh, I exist as not just a, an entity that um, has a sort of momentary existence, but I persist through time or I am capable of grasping uh, the unity of something uh, at time A and time B. Um, so his, his sort of um, image of how this is possible or of, of the synthesis through which this is possible is the act of drawing a line. So our our sort of grasp of space, or sorry, our grasp of time is um, is uh, mediated through something like the act of drawing a line, uh, where we attend not just to the line that is drawn, or or sort of we we ignore the line itself that is drawn, but we um, but we uh, attend to the act of drawing the line itself. Um, and so it's this act of drawing the line that we're sort of paying attention to. Um, and uh, not the result of that act. And so Simon Don here is pointing to this um, sort of two-sided nature of the act. Uh, so we we can pay attention either to the result of the act or the act insofar as it produces a particular structure as its result. Um, so that's the, the structure side of the act. And then we can also attend to the act insofar as it's an operation. So insofar as it's um, bringing about the structure and, and not attend to the, the structure itself. Uh, and so um, he's here in this text, he's dividing sciences or any any sort of intellectual um, um, operation or any any intellectual domain into like the the domain of structure and the domain of operations. Um, and uh, allegmatics is his name for the um, science of operations or the uh, intellectual inquiry into operations as such. Um, and another, maybe a small point of translation here is that um, in the first bit where he says uh, allegmatics is the theory of operations, in the order of the sciences, it is symmetrical with the theory of structures and is constituted by a systematized set of particular knowledges. Um, it should instead, instead of saying and is constituted, it should say which is constituted. So it's the theory of structures, which is constituted by uh, astronomy, physics, chemistry, biology, etc. It's, it's not allegmatics. So allegmatics is always sort of between the existing sciences, um, which is as as he explains in the next bit. So you can um, you could have an allegmatics that's sort of between physics, physics and chemistry, or between um, uh, biology and psychology, for example. Um, it would take the the set of structures that um, biology studies and sort of look at. Um, how they pass to the next one. Um, uh, yeah, actually, that's, that's interesting. Um, so that's um, uh, Spencer Brown, I believe, is the the name uh, of um, the this sort of logician who who uh, tries to derive logic as a whole from this action of of making a mark. Uh, you know, this, and this mark sort of divides the conceptual space into two. Um, so you have one side of the mark, yeah, Spencer Brown. Um, 
you have one side of the mark and the other side of the mark. Um, and so you have the, the act itself, and then you have the result of the act, which is this mark that divides space into one side of the mark and the other side of the mark. Um, um, and so, yeah, this, this sort of uh, taking the, um, uh, this complementarity of the act and the result of the act um, as like the, the sort of universal principle for dividing sciences, I think that's sort of what Simon Don is, is uh, working with here. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I know, Angus, you have to leave. Maybe we can just go on a little bit um, past when when Angus has to leave, um, just so we can get a little bit further into the text, and then we'll maybe read one more section and then go from there. Uh, so do we have any volunteers to read the next bit? Uh, I, I would do, I would do it. I could, I could have pressed the button. So, oh, by the way, where we are? Um, so we are at um, perhaps, perhaps we could nevertheless attempt. Right. Perhaps we could nevertheless attempt to grasp encounters in which the very act is grasped simultaneously as operation and as a structure. These privileged and exceptional cases take on both a normative and a metaphysical sense. They are axiotological. These cases include Descartes' cogito or in the cogito, the act of thought is grasped objectively as a structure and subjectively as an op operation. The more thought doubts its own structure, structural existence, the more this operation of doubt grasped as a, stru as a structure. For example, objective reality facing reflexive thought presents, presents itself to the thought as an existence of which one cannot doubt. The oscillation of doubt, which is a reflexive alteration, alternation, allows for the act of thought to be grasped simultaneously and identically as an, as object and, and as a subject. The evidence of thought of evidence of the existence of thought. The Cartesian hypothesis of the evil genesis, genius, is merely a means for increasing this necessary oscillation by making the subject aware of the twofold situation of his thought with respect to himself. Sometimes grasp as a, as object, sometimes as subject, sometimes as a structure of an operation, and sometimes as an operation as on a structure. The second negating subject of the evil genius plays the role of resuscitating the oscillating instability of self-consciousness by creating a reflexive consciousness of this instability. Instability. Also think to think himself not just with respect to himself, but also in his rapport to rapport to the evil genius, the subject grasps himself as if he became exterior and superior to the twofold situation he occupies as with respect to himself. He becomes a reflexive subject by taking in order to resist the, the evil genius, the point of view not just of the subject of being or the object of being, but of the being of the act of thought, which which the attention of a conscious this consciousness decomposes, decomposes into operation and structure. Demoniacal negation endows the subject with the consciousness of his act and of his being. Meng Du Hang elicited the same fundamental truth in, in the ordeal of the Volo. Here, negation is provided by an exterior that is no longer the exterior of other 
hostile subject but of an inert world that is just by revealing its reducible alteri in this way. These two ordeals are the same. They are the ordeal of an act, and insofar as the act identified with the being, they take on a signification as a principle and point of departure. They provide an ontology and axiology because they give the knowledge of a first reality to the subject. Since this reality is known absolutely, the success of this act of knowledge provides the paragon of eminently valid knowledge. The knowledge of our first reality provides a criterion of a, a truth. We have to stop here. Yeah, let's stop here. This is a kind of a dense text, so let's uh, read maybe shorter bits um, as we go along. Um, right. So here, this we can connect this with um, the discussion in uh, volume one on in uh, psychical individuation when he talks about the doubting doubt and the doubted doubt. Um, if you remember that passage, um, so um, in in the Kogito, we can um, we can see this this act. Uh, we have this sort of complementarity of the uh, um, the action or the operation and the structure in the act of the Kogito or in the act of doubting. So as I as I doubt whether or not I exist, um, I um, at the same time that that act of doubting is itself something that is certain um is a is a, a structure that is uh, sort of uh incontrovertible um so uh and then at the same time um i can you know take each instance of that um uh act and then put it into doubt itself so um at any given moment i can doubt that my previous action um uh of doubting um, you know, exists or or was real, but each moment in which I perform that act of doubt um, is um, is itself um, uh, an oper is an operation that is sort of immediately convertible into a reality. Um, so there's this um, yeah this convertibility uh, in the act of the cogito between the operation and um, um, the operation and the structure. Um, in, in the act of doubting. Uh, and then, so he points out here this um, hypothesis of the evil demon or the evil genius. Um, it looks like there's a difference of translation, um, but um, this um, uh, demon who, um, you know, makes me think that two plus two equals five or whatever, um, this uh, entity that makes me, that, that Descartes supposes um, as a, uh, Sort of the the principle that allows me to doubt everything. Um, so this um, entity um, brings about this what he calls the oscillating instability of self consciousness. Um, so um, the subject is capable of grasping um, grasping himself or or itself uh, as something that is subject to oscillation. So it's not just that as an entity I um, I act in this oscillating manner. So this, uh, I'm, I'm sort of wavering between two options, you know, is, is two plus two equal to four or five? I'm not sure. Um, uh, so I, 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 you know, have this oscillation in my activity, but then I also, as a subject, I'm capable of grasping this oscillation so I, I can um, become aware of my doubt. Um, and in that act of becoming aware of my doubt or in this act of grasping my oscillation, 
I um, produce something uh, that is certain or that is not subject to further oscillation. Um, so I, I, you know, in the act of doubting or in the act of becoming aware of my own action, um, I, uh, I produce this, you know, fundamental existence of myself, this, uh, you know, I think I exist, which I can, which is true whenever I assert it. Um, so um, it's this act of thought that is this sort of um, immediate convertibility of uh, operation and structure. It's, it's that um, that constitutes the reality of the subject or the being of the subject. Um, so it's not just uh, the subject is not immediately equivalent to the um, operation, but is the subject is the equivalence of the operation and the structure, or the convertibility of operation and structure. Actually, I I I, I don't know exactly what the cart how the cart defines like a, a evil evil genius, but what I uh, thinking over the serpent in the like the uh, serpent and then Adam and Eve, uh, it has like a process of human being um, a become conscious of uh, their existence and then how it is uh, exposed to the world things like that 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 comes to my mind regarding the uh, the identity of evil genius so secondly that what you explain the doubts uh, is like the process of uh, at the same time like a as you explained it's kind of a process of self-conscious of their own existence like by 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 doubting like we can we can we can just like realize that we 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 hear we are we just hear something like that. That that's the like a meaning of doubt, right? Like by the card. Yeah. I so mean, to the, start with the, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Kind of consciousness of subjectivity, like, but the not the word is not the the only subjectivity, but also we uh the evil genius. The role of the evil genius is like uh make us realize other than us there are others and uh, the other so called like milia of other kind of objects uh, still. At the same time, it exists to something like that. Is that right way you understand this part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I think the way that Simon Don presents it here um, is a bit different than that. I think um, the role of the um, evil demon or the evil genius um, is to um, is to sort of force the subject to perform that act of reflection. Um, so. Without the evil, uh, evil spirit, evil genius, whatever you want to call it, um, without this entity, I might um, sort of rest at the level of mathematical truths. So in in the order of um, the meditations, Descartes um, starts by doubting the senses. So he says, um, um, you know, I, I acknowledge that sometimes I'm mistaken. So I... I see a stick in the water and I think it's bent and then I take it out and I realize that it's, it's actually straight. Uh, and he says, you know, as because it's, it's, uh, my senses are not trustworthy. I'm going to doubt everything that the senses tell me. Um, but then he says, you know, there are certain, um, mathematical principles that I acknowledge as being necessarily true. So, you know, that a square has four sides or a two plus two equals four or, or anything simpler. If there's any, if there is such a thing, um, these sort of um, fundamental mathematical truths, he he finds himself unable to doubt, um, uh, and it's at that point that the evil spirit intervenes. So he says, um, he says, you know, the the evil spirit is sort of the um, he he supposes that um, the evil spirit is an entity that um, 
sort of makes me a uh, mistake and every time I try to count the sides of a square or um, that uh, makes me make a mistake every time I try to add two plus two. Um, and so it's only because this entity um, is sort of introduced into the, the picture that I can actually bring mathematical truths into doubt. Um, and then it's by, um, by you know, doubting everything, uh, including mathematical truths, that I grasp my act of doubting itself or, or doubting insofar as it's a, an act of thinking as, um, as this sort of immediate convertibility of operation and structure as um, something that is at the same time um, um, that, that exists uh, insofar as it acts. Um, so uh, it's only because I can doubt everything, including mathematical truths, that I sort of perform this reflexive act and so grasp myself as an entity that exists insofar as it thinks. Um, so uh, that's the role of the evil genius is to sort of force us to go beyond um, things, even to doubt things that seem certain to us. Um, yeah, that's really, oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I uh, really very helpful because it directly like uh, connected to last line of the part I, I just read and then could provide the criterion of the truth. As you explained, like the, in a way, like gives me some, uh, the imagination of the dimensions. So, like it, the world is not just a three dimensions. It could be more than multidimensional, multidimensional. And then what Simungdong is focusing on, so like uh, in, in the world that could be, uh, as you said, like, uh, beyond the human senses, like that, that could be more truth. We don't know. I mean, we we don't perceive. We can't perceive things like that. That that's the role of the evil genius, like uh, here, right? Um, yeah, I think. Well, it it the evil genius forces us to um, sort of relativize our um, our what we take to be certain. So even though I can't on my own, I can't doubt that two plus two equals four. Uh, it's something that's so immediately obvious to me that I can't doubt it. Um, if I suppose that there is this evil genius that, um, that is somehow capable of making me make a mistake every time I try to add two plus two, um, then I can take even things that seem uh, immediately certain to me or immediately obvious to me, um, I can put even those propositions into doubt. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I can, I can treat even things that I take to be immediately certain. I can take that immediate certainty itself to be something subject to doubt. Uh, and, and I think that's the, the role of this evil genius, um, is to allow me to doubt things even when I take them to be immediately certain. Um, um, and so this means that um, I can suppose that something that I find immediately certain might, you know, someone else might find it, might find it um, uh, doubtful or, or someone else might find something different to be immediately certain. Uh, so I can, I can imagine that someone else might say, you know, two plus two equals five is something that is immediately certain and that they have no doubt or they, they can't, um, conceive of a doubt about this proposition. Um, so um, uh, this sort of um, imaginary picture of, uh, of um, the uh, evil genius is what allows me to um, bring up the, the possibility that other um, 
kinds of immediate certainty might be possible for other beings. Um, so yeah, like in your example, other beings might um, you know, immediately be certain that there are four spatial dimensions and not three um, or, or something like that. Um, uh, so yeah, so it's something that um, makes my immediate certainties or the things that I find myself unable to doubt uh, makes those propositions relative to me um, as opposed to sort of um, absolutely valid uh, certainties. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, much clearer. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next little bit. Uh, let's see. Uh, no, I don't want to go that far. So yeah, I'll read um, about a page or so, and then we'll discuss from there and then uh, call it a day after that, I think. Sure. Okay. However, even after a similar point of departure that seems to want to privilege neither the operative aspect nor the structural aspect of being, the thought of Descartes as well as the thought of Biron deal with structure on the one hand and operation on the other. To a certain extent, morality remains definitively provisional in Descartes since it cannot strictly correspond to a structural science that remains unfinished. And Mende de Biron, through a leap into the world of pure operation, defines the hierarchy of three lives by abandoning the point of view of psychophysiological unity within which the ordeal of the effort was situated. The lack of a coherent scientific theory of morality in both the work of Descartes and Mende de Biron is due to the fact that they were both working before the emergence of sufficient conceptions of advanced structural sciences. The science of operations can be attained only if the science of structures becomes aware of the limits of its own domain from within. Allegmatics is the operative side of scientific theory. To this day, science is only half completed. It must now formulate the theory of operation. Nevertheless, since an operation is a conversion of a structure into another structure, there would first need to be a systematics of structures for this work to be achievable. Cybernetics marks the beginning of a general allegmatics. The program of allegmatics, which seeks to be a universal cybernetics, consists in formulating a theory of operation. But it is impossible to define an operation apart from a structure. Consequently, the structural system will be present in the definition of operation in its most universal and most abstract form. And to define the operation will amount to defining a certain convertibility of operation into structure and a structure into operation insofar as the operation effectuates the transformation of one structure into another structure, and is therefore invested with the previous structure that will be reconverted at the end of the operation into the following structure. The operation is a metaxu, or middle ground, between two structures, and yet its nature is unlike that of any structure. Thus, we can predict that allegmatics will have to define the rapport of an operation to an operation and the rapport of an operation to a structure. These first types of rapport, these first type of rapport can be called transoperative, and the second type can be called conversions. Uh, I'll stop here. Um, right. So he he talks about how um, both in Descartes and in Mende Biran we have this um, first moment. Uh, so the cogito in Descartes, um, where there's this immediate convertibility of operation and structure, and then after that first moment you sort of separate the two and you focus on one side, uh, so structure or operation. So you you sort of develop one side. And Descartes, um, of course, focuses on the structure side where he um, developed his physics, uh, his theory of the uh, universe in terms of mechanical causation. Um, and then he, on the side of operation, he gives his, what he calls this provisional morality. So he says that, um, Ultimately, we would want to have a, a system of morals that would be um, a sort of consequence of our understanding of physics, our understanding of the nature of the human being, and so on. Um, 
But since we are living in an era where this uh, system of science is not completed, we have to have a, a sort of provisional morality uh, in the meantime. So, so a, a sort of morality for the period in which science is not yet completed. Um, and um, Simon Don points out that this uh, sort of um, provisional morality is um, is in effect um, definitive or um, you know, since science will never, in fact, be completed, we will always be in the realm of this um, provisional morality. Um, but uh, uh, Descartes doesn't really develop this side of the operation as opposed to the structure. So he, he you know, writes, you know, several books on um, the structure of the world, on um, on the physics and so on. But he doesn't um, he doesn't develop in any detail the side of the provisional morality or the side of the operation. Um, and then Simon Don goes on to um, um, identify allegmatics or, or to um, connect allegmatics as a, a sort of science of operation with um, cybernetics. And so he says allegmatics would be a, a universal cybernetics. Um, so he thinks, as we'll see later on, he, think, he thinks that cybernetics is too restricted in terms of um, the types of operations that it allows. Uh, and he, so cybernetics for him focuses on the uh, operation of feedback, um, uh, whereas allegmatics would be a more general study of operations and, and not just the feedback operations. Um, and this more general or universal version of cybernetics is what allegmatics would be. Wow, it's quite um, interesting, interesting. So. So kind of like uh, then Simon Dong emphasizes like uh, 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 operation, right? A theory of operation. That's distinctive point, right? Yeah. So he he takes it that science, as it has developed up to his time, um, has focused on structure, and now the task is to develop a science of operation as the sort of complement to the science of structure. Um, and and so he takes it that cybernetics is sort of the first attempt or the first. Um, uh, beginning of this science of operation, but the task now is to go further than cybernetics or or develop a more universal science of operation that goes beyond the uh, the level of, of just feedback operations and is is more general than cybernetics. Yeah, right. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about um, um, what kinds of um, relationships between structure and operation we can find. So um, we have um, uh, operation and operation. So you can have a relationship between two different operations. Um, and he calls this uh, kind of relationship transoperative. Uh, and then you can also have a, a, a relationship between an operation and a structure. And he calls this a conversion. And we'll see more about what the uh, relationship between uh, transoperative relations and conversions uh, is going to be. Uh, we'll see that in the rest of the text. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we want to sort of look at higher order construction. So operations of operations and uh, operations between operations and structures. Um, and, and so um, we'll sort of develop this hierarchy of different nested levels of operations and structures and see how they uh, relate to each other. Yeah, so we are going to stop here, right? By doing that, we can remember what we did today, and then yeah, that remember makes uh next session much more interesting. Yeah, so I think this is probably a good place to stop for now because then the next bit is where he starts to develop the theory of 
uh, operations and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we should be able to finish this, uh, maybe not. Yeah, we can try to finish this text next time. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to, but yeah, let's uh, let's try to finish this text next time. Okay, uh, so thanks everyone for coming out. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you next week and we'll try to finish this text. <laughs>